from there. <laughs> I was learning something here, Axel. <laughs> good morning. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Every uh, single day, we Every uh, single day, we learn something new here. <laughs> oh, man, we've learned so much. Uh, but uh, good to be back, Axel, David, uh, everyone. Um, we are back to another edition. So can you hear me well, Axel, first of all? Uh, loud and clear, 555. Okay. So uh, let's start somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, where where would you like to start? Go, go. Know. Where would you like to give? This is such <laughs> a momentous week. I mean, so much has happened within one week. You mean uh, some guys invading Russia? We'll get there. Oh, you trained um, you trained them, right? <laughs> you did train them. That's why you were gone. <laughs> nah, man. Nah, man. Um, but let's start somewhere. Let's start with. Um, the overall uh, military situation and uh, um, we'll move fast from the overall uh, military situation to that particular of the overall military situation which is very very interesting indeed so let's start somewhere and let's start with the two maps I've shared to the nest everyone uh, uh, from the Institute of Study of War Uh, no big changes at the front uh, we'll get to the big change in a bit. No big changes. Um, the Ukrainian military decided to um, abandon most of Bakhmut. As predicted, it served its purpose. Um, Wagner is also apparently on its on a process. We've seen it in the last few hours. On a process of handing over Bakhmut to the Russian military. Um, Prigozhin himself um, kind of trolling the Russian military. I don't think he has. I don't think he under, he has great faith in what the Russian military can hold in Bakhmut. First of all, but well, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin stating clearly that is leaving Bakhmut and. Uh, is handing his positions and his ammo to the uh, Russian military. Uh, Ukraine keeps some pressure on uh, both the north and in the south flank of the city. And uh, they keep some positions in the uh, southwestern part of the city, um, according to Ukrainian military command. Uh, Wagner is apparently, apparently, uh, I say apparently because in all things Russian, it's always apparently, is apparently leaving after a very uh, interesting week where uh, we saw so many developments and uh, we saw, of course, um, Prigozhin uh, lighting up the Russian military offensive and doing an interview where he stated um, kind of truthfully to an extent what's uh, happening with the offensive and where it led them. I'm increasingly um, regarding this and let's get Prigozhin out of the way. I think we're a bit jumping order but let's get Prigozhin out of the way. I think um, 
Now, if he really delivers, uh, if he uh, rotates his forces back into Russia or somewhere else and really uh, leaves Bakhmut to the Russian military, I think we can assess that um, Prigozhin is more concerned, as we've talked about, with the future uh, of his position in the Russian system than anything else deriving from uh, the war itself. Um, I think, I believe from what we've seen, we are seeing the first um, big shifts in the system or the tensions in the Russian system are surfacing to an extent. They've been surfacing for the last uh, few weeks or the last few months, but they are clear now that we have here a very um, clear uh, camps. There's very clear camps. And to an extent, Ukraine just created another camp of what will be a future uh, Russian uh, instability scenario. I'm not going to dwell into that because that's pure speculation. But I'd say that we can count on Prigozhin. We can count on Kadyrov, whose forces didn't turn up again. And that's telling. After so much uh, publicity, he didn't know none of his forces turned up. In numbers, at least. They turned up for a photo shoot. But honestly, we have clearly uh, Kadyrov, for instance, conserving his forces and Prigozhin more concerned with the aftermath of uh, the operations in Ukraine than exactly what's happening uh, in Ukraine, in the war itself. Um, and Prigozhin, along with um, uh, Gherkin, remains very... Uh, uncomfortable about uh, future of uh, the future of the Rus the special military operation um, they are in different camps for sure but um, clearly clearly they uh, make uh, the case that this isn't going well they haven't achieved uh, any of their objectives which is true which is true Um they haven't succeeded in uh, taking Ukraine. They haven't succeeded in breaking. They have, according to Prigozhin, and he's not totally wrong on this. Um, he basically, they basically um, made uh, Ukraine into a united uh, nation. A, a nation united on its national destiny of uh, beating the Russians and getting them out of their territory. And uh, I, I found it quite funny that Prigozhin says at a given point in the interview that, uh, well, uh, somehow um, we made uh, Ukraine well-known everywhere and we have... Um, not uh, succeeded in any of our objectives and uh, we've militarized Ukraine somehow well 
your offensive militarized Ukraine, I'm sorry to say, but um, that's the reason. Uh, around the front lines, we've had some uh, continued fighting uh, in Bakhmut, some fighting in the north, uh, in the Lugansk region, uh, with small advances by the Russian, a major uh, artillery and air bombardment uh, in Avdiv- Avdivka. But um, honestly, Russians are basically at this point uh, in Ukraine, Russians in Ukraine are basically at this point holding uh, to their gains. And I believe they're significantly concerned about uh, the coming uh, counteroffensive. From a military standpoint, the Ukrainians haven't have yet to commit their uh, maneuver forces created for the offensive, which is, I think that's that uh, um, strategic patience that Ukrainians are displaying and the way they are conserving their forces and building up their their resources. And we'll talk a bit about that um, next. But first of all, uh, that's uh, unnerving the Russians. Because you know they they are still fighting the same units they've been kept fighting, and no reserves have been poured into 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 the front. Even even if there are significant uh, increases in uh, irregular activity, both in Ukraine and in Russia, and we'll get there. And because it's close to my heart, and the regular activity, as I pointed out, keeps. It's basically, from what we see, um, spread out in northern Lugansk, uh, Donetsk region, uh, and then Lugansk itself, Donetsk itself, and then in the south, Melitopol, Crimea, Mariupol, Tokmak. So, this is a clear sign. And now, of course, you irregular or unconventional warfare activity going on went on this week in uh, Russia. Axel, I think that basically covers the military situation from this 30,000 feet standpoint before we go into the Belgorod raid, right? What do you think? Um, Three questions. First and foremost, uh, we've heard um, there's very good, very good indications from various sources that um, our Ukrainian friends now have, uh, if not Link 16, at least good link-up between their overall layered air defense on the ground and their air mm-hmm. force, mm-hmm. which was not the case before. We've discussed it here with our colleagues that essentially that gives them um, a visibility and therefore a BBR and range ex- uh, extension, therefore better decision-making capability. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they can integrate both their air defenses, their mobile air defenses, with their remaining um, SU-25 capacity. Aircraft. And their aircraft, exactly. So both their close air support becomes more effective. Mm-hmm. They are less at risk. And uh, with what seems to be the case, the integration of better missile systems with the SU-24, the Ukrainian Air Force, even in the run-up to later future deliveries of Western aircraft, is significantly more secure today and more effective. How does that change? Don't forget. Yeah, sorry. 
don't forget the just to point out don't forget the uh, integrated battle management system and the engagement operations center that's at the heart of part of this right yeah that would have been my question what do we see uh, as one of the main game changing efforts is it the future of f16s or is it more that we are now seeing a more integrated combined arms capability with the ukrainians in the run up to the um counteroffensive yeah so that's a good point that's a good question and one of the questions we had to address was the f16s first of all finally finally as we stated last week we have the f16 Apparently, there are pilots trained, which is um, shockingly surprising. Um, and the the interesting part of this is, of course, the, the integrated battle management system and the Link sixteen uh, capability with that links this to the to the Air Force. Um, into the close air support assets gives Ukrainians the ability to at current level at current level conduct uh, already uh, some combined arms operations with air support with fixed wing air support uh, we've seen the integration of uh, obviously the storm shadow or the sculpt and uh, that gives commanders also at strategic operational level uh, a, a very robust deep fire capability, which is um, relevant for uh, for the the upcoming operations, and <clears throat> this will. Uh, ass my assessment is, uh, you need basically uh, air superiority or uh, in close air support at the given point. You don't need to establish it over theater. You will not be able to do that, not even with the F-16, not in the quantities at least you're going to receive at first. You could do that with hundreds, hundreds of F-16s. Yes, you could do that. But with the quantities they're going to receive at first, I don't think they, I don't believe it's possible to establish theater air superiority. We have a situation uh, to an extent of um, denial, air denial, by both parties in this case, that's interrupted by uh, stints of super local superiority, which is, uh, for now, uh, fine, and it works. Ukraine, this, Ukraine has, at this point, some advantage in that, we can we can assess that from the the from what we've seen from the developments we've seen. We are clearly seeing a very robust and very uh, well layered integrated air defense at this point. Because if we look at the last missile strikes in the last bombardment, the last missile strikes by Russia, uh, we are seeing clearly that uh, Ukrainian air defense has early warning and has the ability to uh, integrate their defensive assets 
and choose what defensive assets engage what. Uh, they have some difficulties yet with some types of of uh, Russian cruise missiles because they are, they are more maneuverable, because have better guidance. Um, but uh, overall, sorry, uh, overall they've been extremely successful, and it proved the concept. It proved the concept. And if I was um, a nuclear planner in, back in Moscow. I'd be I'd be spooked because some of these assets uh, like the KH-101s or the KH-102s and the Skanderam and even the Kinzhal are part of uh, Russia's tactical nuclear tri- uh, capability and part of their nuclear triad. So in that sense, I'd be a bit worried uh, because apparently uh, Western systems can intercept all this with a high degree of precision and with a a very high, an extremely high uh, kill ratio, which, of course, has uh, Russians' uh, concern. Another point of this is the VKS, or the, or the, the Aerospace Forces, or the VBS, which is the fixed-wing part of the VKS, uh, Russian Air Force. Russian Air Force clearly... Uh, is a no-show, remains a no-show. It's lobbing bombs at some point to the front. We had an SU-35 shot down in the south by an air defense system. We had confirmation of something that was known. Those four aircraft, both helicopters and and fighters that the Russians lost uh, in Bryansk were the work of a Patriot battery, German one, because the American one is in Kiev. And uh, another system or a different system uh, killed uh, that SU-35 over the Black Sea. So in that sense, uh, the air threat or the air picture for Russian Air Force has become much more difficult. And that will uh, hamper, of course, uh, operations to come. It bodes well for um, attacks, not just raids, as we've just seen, but actually for real attacks, because you can now significantly more consequently and far-ranging and uh, without um, being completely at risk in certain areas, plan different strike packages. Yes. Yes, you can. And there's another aspect of that which is um, commanders Ukrainian commanders at the divisional level can now integrate um, air uh, support right obviously let's be clear remains limited because of the number of assets type of assets but it's available and um that makes a difference in localized attacks where um, it will be required uh, for to, to have um, a degree of success, right? Now, we could discuss a number of things about this, but I'd say that 
um, most of all, we have seen um, Ukrainian air defenses and Ukrainian air capability, anti-air and air defense capabilities being um, much more robust, being much more well integrated. I still believe that beyond the, the overall systems that are there, the Ukrainian legacy ones, the S-300Bs, and also the the NASAMs, the IVST, uh, all the Shored systems, and then the Patriots and the SAMPT, um, we've seen uh, quite the, a very different uh, air defense situation for Ukraine. Uh, a very robust air defense situation. And, of course, a shout-out to the Gepard, right? The Flak Panzer. Because we... Uh, a piece of... A piece of as someone pointed out very aptly, a piece of kit we in the West had um, basically mothballs has become one of the most successful weapons in the war. Okay? So... Perhaps our own understanding of war uh, and air defense changed quite a bit. And everyone is looking at the concept and saying, well, we need this, right? And the Flak Panzer is uh, a major success. Um, it's doing, it's behaving extremely well, doing exactly what it was built to do. Well, not exactly, because when it was built to do, it was built to kill um Russian helicopters, and now it's being used to kill Russian helicopters and drones. But it's been extreme. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, I agree, but uh, I, I'm <laughs> very happy. I'm, I'm really very happy seeing finally the real use for this asset. Uh, unfortunately, it's highly unlikely that we'll be um, uh, fighting off much of Russian close air support aircraft because that would have been the other classic use for it but i think it may come in handy when moving forward quickly and not only providing the bubble but also giving fire support for advancing mechanized infantry because it is exceptionally precise and it's very very mobile so there you go and it's great it's grow it's absolutely essential uh in this day and age to have a system like that integrated with forces uh, not only because of uh, drones that may attack the forces, but drones that uh, are used for intelligence, surveillance, and target acquisition, right? Um, we've seen both from the Russians and the Ukrainians the use of drones to correct artillery, mostly the, the Ukrainians, but Russians do it too. And that um, is something that uh, the Gepard can really make a difference, right? also for loitering munitions. So in that sense, uh, we need to um, be aware that uh, let's not move anywhere um, without it, okay? Um, for my, that's one of the takeaways, I think, from, from the Ukrainian war is uh, future war is about also uh, anti-drone systems in multiple variants, but this one works. And there's a, a, a thing to uh, think about here as well is, is that the uh, um, sometimes uh, military and some generals who are, who are intent on selling new kit have a tendency to say something is dead 
right? There's no need for these anymore. And as Gunny will remind everyone, when the Royal Navy went down to the Falklands, they were finding, I, mean, I think it's 40, what, 43 millimeter bofors from museums and attaching them to ships because the world had said, no, the world only needs rockets now. And lo and behold, yeah, that old technology seems to be the way to go. So yeah, never say no, and, right? Uh, and the, no, the Gepard will be, uh, of course, uh, uh, upgraded by the with the new um, 35 millimeter uh, system that um, Rand Metal has already uh, deployed to Ukraine. One of at least one of the systems is there. I think it's Sky. I have to look, but it's uh, Sky. Some I'd have to look at them. It's a Sky Ranger or Sky Shield, something like that. But uh, it's a new uh, 35 millimeter engagement system. It's basically the turret. It's a multiple uh, platform system that you can basically operate out from a truck, from a, a tracked vehicle, from a ship, whatever. It's uh, it's the turret itself with a thirty-five millimeter radars, a tracking radar that um, that is the system. Then you can mount it on multiple platforms, and this is uh, has been proven as a very. Uh, interesting system that was mothballed, but uh, we needed it. Uh, a lot of systems, let's be frank, some systems that were pretty much mothballed, or things like the Crotal and even the Hawk missiles and all that, um, they're being sent to Ukraine and they're being used. So in that sense, we need to be careful because um, a lot of systems we had uh are useful, but we so must. But we also must be aware that we are fighting Russia like we would in back in the 1990s or the 1980s, because the Russian military apparently uh, got stuck there sometime for some time. So, for different adversaries, other things may may come in handy. Um, especially, and I'm thinking here of obviously the Chinese, uh, which technically are then Russia. And sorry, uh, you were breaking up. You were breaking up in the last a big, bigger number of. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, we can now. You broke up for a uh, moment. Uh, Okay, I was saying that um, uh, we be aware that we are fighting the Russians in a state in a 2000s, 1990s setting uh, because they are not so superior to what they were back then. And uh, the Chinese are a different ballgame, so there may be other assets, but we need to, to have some takeaways from this war, and I'd say that there's a few, but one of the key takeaways for me in particular is don't go anywhere on a modern battlefield without something to shoot drones out, especially with formation drones and um, uh, loitering munitions down. Uh, don't go anywhere, okay? So uh, that's something we can already take away from uh, the current uh, 
war in Ukraine. And we've had some remarkable said, things this week, right? transition to the invasion of Russia, I right? was just about to say, we had something very remarkable happening earlier this week, and I was about so? to welcome you earlier on when you came on with... Can you hear me? Yes, I can, can, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? No, no, oh, can you hear me? Ah, can you... Can you hear me? No, no, it I can hear you. Mr. Oh, M, could you tell okay, Nuno fine. that he can't hear us? I think you found here, connection... Axel. Uh... Axel? You I'm found here. Uh, okay, okay, but I can hear you. That's yes. strange. Oh, uh, do you hear me as well, Nuno? If you cycle down... Okay. If you recycle, Nuno? I hear you, David. I'll have to recycle, probably. Yes, please. Then it will be better. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. We will wait for uh, Nuno to come back. And Axel. They've all gone. Oh, well, we could make this peony hour again now. Uh, uh, Mexican, do you like my peonies? Oh, I'm supposed to be going and looking on your... You've posted them, have you? No, I messaged you. Can you hear me now? Oh, I'm going... I'm, cons- I'm focusing on all of these weapons, munitions, equipment. I'm keeping my ma- eyes on the prize, but I... Uh, uh, give me a second. I'll bring you both up. Uh, the uh, ones. Oh. Can you hear me? Can you I hear can me? I can hear you, Nuno. Can you... Uh, hopefully you can hear me. Okay, thanks, Sam. And Axel, can you hear me? Loud and clear, five by five. Ah, finally. It seems we both got disconnected. I was just (laughs) giving you the intro for what happened at the beginning of the week. And I was saying, uh, long live uh, the Republic. Of Bilogorod. The People's Republic of Bilogorod. Of course. Welcome to Bilorodska <laughs> Narodna Respublika. Republika. <laughs> and um, uh, we um, we have no idea who did that. Um, those concerned patriots, Russian patriots who are oppressed by the Putin regime um, found all those weapons in, in the local barns, in the surplus military shops, as one does. And uh, the multicam uh, men the little multicam man um, also found all those uniforms in, multi- in the, the surplus shops. There's some pretty good ones in Serbia. And apparently um, these Russian patriots uh, say that the, there's a few, but one of the key takeaways for me in particular is don't go anywhere on a modern battlefield without something to shoot drones out, especially with formations. Drones and um, uh, loitering munitions down uh, don't go anywhere, okay? So uh, that's something we can already take away from uh, the current uh, war in Ukraine. And we've had some remarkable things this week, right? transition to the invasion of Russia, I was just about to say, we had something very remarkable happening earlier this week, and I was about to welcome you earlier on when you came on with... Can you hear me? Yes, I can, can. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? No, no. Oh, can you hear me? Ah, can you? Can you hear me? No, no. It I can hear you. 
Mr. M, could you tell okay, Nuno fine. that he can't hear us? I think you can't hear Axel. Axel? You I'm can't here. hear him. Uh, okay, okay, but I can hear you. That's yes. strange. Oh, uh, do you hear me as well, Nuno? If you cycle I down. You, David. I hear okay. You. If you recycle, Nuno. I hear you, David. I'll have to recycle, probably. Yes, please. Then it will be better. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. We will wait for uh, Nuno to come back. And Axel. They've all gone. Oh, well, we could make this peony hour again now. Uh, uh, Mexican, do you like my peonies? Oh, I'm supposed to be going and looking on your... You've posted them, have you? No, I messaged you. I'm focusing on all of these weapons, munitions, equipment. I'm keeping my ma eyes on the prize. But I uh, uh, Give me a second. I'll bring you both up. Uh, the, uh, once, oh. Can you hear me? Can you I, hear can, me? I can hear you, Nuno. Can you, uh, hopefully you can hear me. Okay, thanks, Sam. And Axel, can you hear me? Loud and clear, five by five. Ah, finally. It we seems we both got disconnected. I was just <laughs> giving you the intro for what happened at the beginning of the week. Where, and I was saying, uh, Respublica, long live uh, the Republic. Of Bilogorod, the People's Republic of Bilogorod. Of course. Welcome to Bilorodska <laughs> Narodna Respublika. Republika. <laughs> and um, uh, we um, we have no idea who did that. Um, those concerned patriots, Russian patriots who are oppressed by the Putin regime, um, found all those weapons in, in the local barns, in the surplus military shops, as one does. And uh, the multicam uh, men the little multicam man um, also found all those uniforms in, multi in the, the surplus shops. There's some pretty good ones in Serbia. And apparently um, these Russian patriots uh, decided to take up arms against the oppression of the Kremlin and to establish the long-known uh, Belgorod Republic. And... Um, there's um, it's a motive of concern. We should uh, create a we should run a referendum, of course, and we should um, take in concern, take in, in account the, the will of the people and the problems that stem from that. Uh, I'm sure Ukraine is following the situation closely uh, and is trying to assess um, where these forces are if they need any support. I found it um, charming that the Russians for about 18 hours had very little to say about it. <laughs> the funny part. There was Go ahead. paralysis. There was chaos. real paralysis chaos. in chaos. communication. Chaos. First of all, let's, on a serious note, on a serious note about the, the Belgorod, right? Um, it's an extremely well done operation. Now, I'll, I'll get the the complex stuff out of the way. Uh, both the RDK and the Russian Legion 
uh, were accused of harboring uh, far-right elements. They possibly do. Uh, but um, the, <clears throat> the Ukrainian military intelligence was very smart in doing this. This creates, well, it creates problems for Ukraine too, and I'll get to that. But from a military standpoint, and looking at it from a, my own vision of it, I have to applaud General Budanov and his guys. It's an extraordinary move, okay? It's uh, a move that, let's see, it's not aimed at holding territory. I saw so many people, but they're not going to hold territory. Of course, they're not going to hold territory. That's not the point. The point is you have a Russian force that's not directly linked with Ukrainian command, taking the fight into Russia and using, being um, a weapon, being uh, an asset to instill paranoia in Moscow and to show Russian population because the target here is the information space in the political leadership. This is a political warfare operation. As a friend of mine says, it's a, it has an act of reflexive, reflexive control, which is uh, an active measure that's uh, used to uh, make the enemy or the adversary uh, respond in a certain way. And has uh, and the perception of that being uh, act in a way that forces a certain perception of weakness, of disarray, and that happened, right? And it's very, very important to do. It's a well conceived. And who's been the main user of reflexive control over the past seventy years? Russia. Sweetness and light. Sweetness, yes, it's uh, that's a, that's that's my point exactly. This is turning the tables on them with exactly the same modus operandi of both hybrid war. I don't like the term. This is more. Um, this isn't a conventional operation, conventional warfare operation, because these are trained. Russian forces that are opposing the Russian regime. So it's an unconventional uh, warfare operation. It's also a political warfare operation. It's an information warfare operation. It's an active measure as a whole. And in that sense, we could call it a hybrid warfare operation. Now, its objective, obviously, uh, is not to uh, seize terrain. But it's more than that. It's to make Russia respond, to show weakness of the regime. Because, let's be frank, those borders are completely unguarded. These few hundred guys walked into Russia, which deep inside Russia, to... Uh, to a point where to Gravivoron in Belogorod, which is a fairly large city, that forced uh, 
Russian military to deploy forces to the region. It forced uh, the Russian military to send General Lapin, Colonel General Lapin, uh, to uh, control the situation. And, what, and, they and, sent a rabbit to do a fox's job? <laughs> and uh, and direct traffic, too, because we saw some nice videos of the Colonel General directing traffic, which which is very much in Russia's style of commanding from the front, but I don't think any general in the proper army directs traffic, but that's just me. Maybe I'm used to other types of general. And it's um, the FSB itself says that uh, these uh, raiders tried to plant explosives under um, uh, in nuclear reactors, which is kind of funky. Um, not these raids, but there were uh, other raids. So, in a sense, let's be let's be let's be frank. The Russians were spooked. That's the the whole point. It's a very well thought out. It's a very well executed operation. But, but, now the buts. It raised some concern in Washington. And we had a large New York Times piece uh, saying that, first of all, American equipment was used. Then uh, there's a lot of problems with that, apparently. Um, and then uh, the guys conducting the operation, not exactly uh, choir boys. They're far right elements, of most of them, sure. Let's not get into that. Um, and let's not get into that because uh, we all have some, as I had the opportunity to say, we also, we all had some cutthroats uh, in the payroll now and then. By all, I mean Europeans and Americans, but mostly we Europeans have quite a few good ones. Uh, the... Ukrainian military intelligence. Uh, uh, I found it absolutely astonishing that apparently someone uh, with intelligence access in the U.S. thinks that, well, these groups, Zelensky wasn't informed. Uh, he only gave orders of the overall strategic objective. And then uh, military intelligence at different levels and special forces units execute and the general staff execute operations and not all of them, not all of these covert and even these overt operations or these hybrid warfare operations are known to Zelensky. Well, yeah, that's how it's done, right? Political leadership defines a strategic objective. People execute it. Of course, there's a national level uh, strategic operations that require national command authority approval. That's a different matter. But in a war like this, they'll have a degree of independence to execute operations to uh, move forward the overall strategic of the objective. And it's done like this also to provide Mr. Zelensky and his uh, uh, and his government uh, 
a good degree of diplomatic and political deniability, which is important for partners and allies. For me, this is clear. I have no issue with that. I think it's it's done as it's supposed to be done. Um, it's uh, a well done operation. It's a, a well executed operation. Apparently, the group uh, have uh, two dead, ten wounded, uh, lost a couple of vehicles, brought home different vehicles. Um, but they serve their purpose, right? And uh, at a given point, martial law was declared uh, in Belgorod by the governor, Governor Gladkov, and uh, there's damage there, in especially the the political um, outcome and the weakness that uh, it displays from the Putin regime to its own population, because let's not forget these are Russians going into Russia to fight the Russian regime. These are not Ukrainian soldiers. So it's not Ukraine invading Russia, it's Russian movement, Russian uh, freedom forces invading Russia or moving into Russia to try and uh, conduct an insurgency. That's um, a move that spooks the Kremlin, gets uh, massive political uh, uh, points within Russia for the Ukrainians, and gets Shoigu, uh, gives Shoigu and Gerasimov a major headache, Headache, sorry, because you now have to be aware that you may be invaded by these Russian forces and you'll need to man that border. And it's a very large border that remains undefended because the troops are in Ukraine. So with that said, I think General Budanov and his, um, his planners made a legendary operation of this war. It's a great special, let's call it a special operation in a sense. Um, but uh, it's caused panic in DC. <laughs> Why are we not surprised? <laughs> no, we're not. The same people, the, the same people who have always, always been living in fear. Um, just when they were beaten down in regard to the F-16, found something to lash onto on Monday evening. Yes, and, and, and more than that, uh, we have heard at zero. And I think that one of the, the interesting issues here is we've heard zero. It's absolutely zero from European allies. You didn't see the French, the Italians, the Germans, anyone saying a goddamn thing about this operation. Zero. There is no, absolutely no problem with this. Where we have a problem with this, strangely enough, the US. Why? Well, one, it's internal politics, right? This is uh, internal U.S. politics playing because 
one of the problems here, and that's a very real, real problem, is this operation provides both the left and the right of the spectrum elements in the in the in the Republicans and elements in the Democrats um, ammunition to cut support to Ukraine. Because let's make, let's make no mistake, have no dif, no have no issue with this. Uh, there is a very isolationist element of U.S. politics, both in the left and in the right, for different reasons. The left will say, or around this operation, will say the left wing of the the left wing or the more progressive wing of the of the Democrats of the Democrats, sorry will say, look, we're supporting Nazis. How can this be? This is the U.S. Uh, this is immoral. How can this happen? The, the more right-wing part of the Republicans will say, look, there's Joe Biden is, starting, is, is colluding to start World War III. We should get out of Ukraine and all that. And that's a very real danger. Okay, especially as we enter a season of uh, U.S. internal politics uh, in the fall, I have no, 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 no. I, I, I understand the problem for the Americans. I understand the problems for the administration because some of these guys are very spooked about this operation, and I, I, I thought that it was very interesting and very... That article in New York Times, I'll have to share it in the next. Uh, That article uh, tells us that um, we got some serious uh, senior people worried because of the nature of the groups. (laughs) Because they found out that not all Russians are like them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and, and Russians it's so, I mean seriously isn't it, isn't it, it is eerily funny the uh, blinders they have like horses had in the in the bad old days in, in, city, in, in urban environments that they had to put up blinders not to get spooked on the road whilst being trained this seems like that They're, these are self-imposed blinders are they not Nuno because you and I know that this was a great test of how the public and how governments would react right after the G7 tour, right after the successes and the support collated. It, I mean, it's a perfect fit, isn't it? It's a part of the counteroffensive. Okay, it's a part of the counteroffensive. It's a an irregular warfare, unconventional warfare. Let's call it that. Unconventional warfare. It's more unconventional than irregular, um, because these are established forces. It's an unconventional approach to war. And the problem with that is what I thought was very interesting. I understand the issue, but at the same time, it pains me quite a bit. Because this is Russians have zero qualms in doing this, right? With whatever comes to mind, whatever comes at hand. And we are self-imposing a limit when uh, not we, the United States is self-imposing itself a limit because these these groups are, yeah, some some of them are plain old neo-Nazis, 
Russian neo-Nazis. I get that. I get the politics. I get all that. But you fight with the Russians you have, not the Russians you wish you had first. And then you didn't hear a peep from European chancelleries about this because shall we talk about everyone we have in the payroll in North Africa, Africa? Shall we? I don't think we want to do that, right? Because some of the groups we supported and used and will use in the future make these guys look like choir boys. It's the nature of things. Uh, at the height of the global war on terror, somebody once wrote and uh, used to say that we fight with the Abu you have, not the Abu you wish you had, right? And I forgot that. And shall we talk about the French or the Italians in Libya, shall we? I don't think that's a very interesting idea. And none, of, none in Europe thinks that's an interesting idea, by the way, right? No one said absolutely nothing on it, right? Uh, it didn't exist for the Europeans. And I found it quite disturbing that the U.S. Um, had so many issues with this. And to the point that uh, some very senior, senior people came out to say, try to throw some cold water in the way Ukrainians run operations because these groups are not the most um, the best uh, example well I understand all the politics I understand the internal divisions I understand that many in the left and the right will use this make no mistake about it but um I also understand why the Ukrainians did it, and I fully support how they did it. And I believe they have it, um, they intend to do it again uh, over time, unless someone in DC really tried to pull the plug on this because of the nature of the groups. But that would be uh, undermining victory, honestly, because it serves a political purpose. Two things uh, in this regard. It often is completely, utterly uh, disregarded that Ukraine, right at the beginning of this full-scale invasion, took Tochka-Uz to bomb Taganrog Air Base to ensure that not all of those support planes and transport planes would bring additional BDV forces and their mobile artillery mm -hmm. and light armored vehicles into, into, into theater. Into theater. Yeah. 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 And they did this exact, exceptionally successfully. They didn't succeed in another location, but that doesn't matter for the moment. But they did hit Tagan Rock. And by that means, that is one of the many contributing factors to having um, defeated that first full scale assault mm -hmm. and decapitation strike approach. Second part is that if you look at the map and the logistics lines all along the borders of Ukraine towards Russia, 
there is a high likelihood that in at least four areas, at some point in time, when Ukraine takes back its territory and fights off the Russians, they may even have to go through Russian territory. Yes, that's another point. This will probably need to happen. Will be likely that to an extent some maneuver elements will have to go into Russia. For because of geographic reasons, obstacles for the enemy, whatever. Okay, uh, if we are uh, facing, let's say, collapsing Lugansk and Donetsk, um, some buffer zones will have to be created to an extent. Okay, if that's the objective. Okay. And, yeah, and, and whether that is maneuver elements or SOF, it doesn't really matter. In certain areas, it will have to be a full-scale mechanized battalion. Uh, in other areas, a, will that's be... the thing which will come. It will come. Yeah. Yes, it will come. But I, I believe that the tripping over this is a bit undermining. And I found it personally, personally, and this is my personal view. I found I found it very um, underwhelming, and I found it that we keep this idea that we should fight with a hand tied behind our backs, right? Or uh, say to the Ukrainians, you need to fight, but don't use this, don't use that, don't go there. And if we are serious in in stating, as I believe we are, that it's the 1991 internationally recognized borders, it will mean seizing Crimea. And listen, for Vladimir Putin, losing Crimea is worse than some guys invading a few villages in Belgorod. Trust me. The, the impact in the regime is significantly bigger uh, in losing Crimea. Yet, we say Yes, but we uh, we support uh, the return of the 1991 internationally recognized borders for Ukraine. If we do that, we can't expect Ukrainians to fight their hand behind their backs. And we should not forget, and this is an important point, that we have a Belarusian legion, that we have a Georgian legion, that we have a Russian legion. And these things are not intertwined for reasons. And one of the reasons is at any given point, for instance, the Belarusians may be called to go into Belarus. Or as the Ukrainians did now in Russia. For other reasons, sure, because uh, maybe Lukashenko died of, of the problems and the health issues he had. Um, if he does, what happens then? But honestly, I found it disturbing that we keep... Um, the, and, and again, I understand all the issues for the Americans. I really do. And uh, the issues of internal politics that, that are uh, at, at, at play here, because we all have internal politics. And the U.S. being the ultimate security guarantor, it has internal politics. But at this point, uh, there's no way to do this, no way to re reconstitute the 1991 
borders for Ukraine without a level of significant risk. There's not. Really isn't. And trust me, Vladimir Putin will take it much harder. An invasion of Crimea or uh, eventually the isolation and then conquest, recon reconquer the Ukrainians reconquering Crimea much harder than you will uh, the these operations in Kursk, Belogorod, and whatever comes. And this is something that we need to keep very, very uh, present in mind because Ukrainians have a strategy. War is not conventional or unconventional. It's both things. They're conducting a, a, a covert war and a special operations war and an unconventional warfare war at the same time, they're conducting a conventional war against Russia. And we talk about the defense of Bakhmut. Uh, we talk about this raid. These are two different realities, right? One is an unconventional warfare. The other is a very much a conventional defensive operation. Uh, so this is an integrated effort at national level. And we cannot uh, say to the Ukrainians, listen, <laughs> We have qualms with using this or that or this group or the other group because we shouldn't. I understand all the problems with these groups. I do. I really do. I understand the politics, but that's just my opinion. And I think we have a few hands up, so I don't know who was first. Let's go. I think it was Jens, actually, and then Kerry. Okay, Jens, go ahead. Kerry, go first, I think. Yeah, Tom Kerry, go ahead. Thank you, Jens. Um, so I was just going to say, Nuno, you know, you're bringing here the threads that we've been talking about for some time about, um, well, I was basically going to say that this self-harm of the supporters of Ukraine feels like the biggest risk to the success of Ukraine's rightful offence. Um, I don't know how we as a community can can try and negate that impact, but I do feel quite concerned that this self this self harming message will potentially become one of the biggest barriers to Ukraine going forwards, which is so utterly self-defeating shoot yourself in the foot it does not come from the ukrainians but i do fear that we are going to tie ourselves up in knots because we've hardly begun on this stage of the offensive where literally around the world we could be ham you know tying who, sorry, up Kerry, the ukrainians Kerry, why is why we? It's only the U.S. administration who had this issue. Not a single European nation said anything. They were all quite content. Everybody in Europe, as lukewarm, as harmless as they may seem, because we've had our fair share of border wars, we know our problems here in continental Europe. We actually have a remembrance even of conventional warfare here. I think everybody quite understands there's no way around these borders. That's why I highlighted this point. Everybody gets it. Nuno has been SOF in Portugal. Everybody gets it. 
this is a political issue and it's only in the US. Nobody said anything I... from the MOD. You didn't hear it from Whitehall. It's not we. This is a domestic political issue in the US. Yes. I suppose I should separate out what I mean is I completely agree with you, Axel Nuno, and I think that's fantastic. I think our our leaders are finally showing their backbone, our military forces and our political leaders. I suppose it's and we know the issue is predominantly with America in that broader respect. However, I'm concerned about but we have shown as a group that we are willing to go for and respond to um, the non-professionals in social media spaces, in mass media. That's, I think, more, I'm separating that out. That's my clarity around that issue. And I think we are able to do an enormous amount to change that story in the spaces that we work in. Yes, and, and Kerry, as Axel was pointing out, this is clearly a, a U.S. domestic politics issue. It has to do with the, their own history to an extent. Uh, Vietnam introduced legislation that harms some of these type of operations. Um, we have a much more... Um, Europe didn't. No one in Europe showed any issues with this, um, because we all look at it and say, "Yeah, this is how it's done. We know how it's conducted." And as I told you, let's not even the British. Let's not look at our payrolls in other places because uh, we can't say to the Ukrainians, "Listen, these guys over here are neo-Nazis." Yeah, we may not have neo-Nazis, I don't think we do, but we have some pretty good good cutthroats on the payroll. Trust me on this. And by we, I mean the French, the Italians, the Portuguese. The Portuguese, not so much, but we have, we've had our share, but it doesn't matter. But uh, the Italians, the French, the British, we've had our share of cutthroats on the payroll. So... Um, some of them literal cutthroats. Um, so there's not uh, an issue for us in this way of war. And uh, But the U.S. has, uh, I understand their problem and I understand the political issues of this. And just pointing out, as, as Axel was saying, we you didn't see the LZ or um, uh, Georgia Maloney or um, senior... Uh, you didn't see basically the MI6 uh, intelligence personnel. You didn't see the <laughs> the DGSE. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because the DGSE <laughs> of all places. <laughs> of all places. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, let's let's be honest. As I said to my good friend Thomas Steiner, let's not talk about Aiza, right? Which is Italian <laughs> foreign intelligence. Uh, uh, let's not go there, but this is the thing, right? There's no, there's no, um, this is an internal uh, political issue in the US, but it's significant and we must realize it because to an extent, the US is the glue of all this and this will be a political football pick. Don't mistake about it. These types of operations as they go on will be a political football in DC. I'm sorry to say this, but this will be a political football for sure. And that's that's exactly my point. I think it's Jens. Please go ahead, Jens. 
Yeah, um, I think I, I see it more as um, as when um, when when Russia has a photo up with two uh, banged up Humvees inside Russia, uh, it's natural that the U.S. administration ha- has to answer a couple of questions. So um, maybe they would recommend they use other kinds of vehicles. I think uh, when um, U.S. are uh, giving Ukraine assistance, I think it's natural to have some assurances. You don't want to see American Abrahams uh, uh, targeting Russian churches and stuff like that. So I think it's just, as you said, pouring cold water on, on, uh, I don't know, a lukewarm fire. So I don't, I thought it was natural that they address it once you have the pictures of Humvees in Russia, whether they are staged or not. The the pictures are clearly staged. Uh, There is, by the way, a chap who's been doing a very good thread on this matter. I really like this. I don't know whether you've seen it, but... He put this out, I think I quoted it somewhere, uh, because he really went through it in very decent fashion. Um, what's his name? Yeah, <clears throat> uh, Jack's House, Flute Magician. Yes, he, very he, he was, and he was, uh, a, tow, uh, he was uh, a tow driver, tow, truck operator, tow yeah. truck operator, and the guy was did a very good thread and saying, listen, if this had happened, this couldn't be like this. But even if it's staged, and uh, the the videos with the MRAPs and the Humvees, that's spooked DC. That's my point, and I I understand what Yen is saying, but I I want people to be aware that um, as this progresses, we will see uh, more of this, and especially if these types of operations repeat themselves, even at a larger scale, because they have all the critical mass to happen at a uh, bigger scale, there's going to be um, some knee-jerking coming out of DC from several sectors, not only the administration, but also the Republicans, part of the Republicans, also part of the Democratic Party. And the issue here is uh, not getting too much into uh, US internal politics because I'm no expert in that, but I follow it closely, uh, but I'm hardly an expert in U.S. politics for sure. Uh, we have had one, we have a few experts in Portugal on that, and, but I'm not one. The thing is um, we need to understand for us Europeans that uh, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are not exactly what we call parties in our countries, right? Uh, we look, say, like we look at Germany, we look at Portugal, we have very clear uh, uh, centralized political parties with the leadership, with uh, that they exert vote discipline and all that. The US is more complex. It's a continental country uh, and it's more complex because both the Democrats and the the Republicans, if we are going to put it in European terms, you'd have like six parties in there uh, between the two of them. Um, because there's a more progressive wing, there's a more centrist wing, there's an isolationist wing in all of them, there's a, a more radical far-right wing, 
who's isolationist to in the US, there's a mainstream, there's a an old Republican uh, centrist wing. So there's like a number of political parties within those two political parties in the US. It's not like the Tories in Labour or the SPD and CDU or uh, or the Greens. It's not exactly the same the same nature of things. So this is something people need to understand. There's no clear centralized leadership in those parties. There's a lot of stakeholders, a lot of players, and some of them are frankly um, waiting on a reason to be isolationist and to get out of this for different reasons that are far left, far right, and even left and right. Um, uh, that we need to be aware of and this will come into play as both the counteroffensive moves forward in these types of operations move forward and I suspect that Mr. Budanov will want to go deeper and deeper um, but um, honestly um, it's, it's, it's a problem it's a problem and it's a problem that we need to be aware of uh, and I think next is uh, lunchtime. It was lunchtime, actually. Lunchtime, go ahead. Thanks. Um, thanks, Nino. It's always interesting to hear you talk about uh, about these things. Uh, and your perspective is always uh, really interesting. I'd say. Uh, so thank you again for your time um, on the space. Um, I would say that uh, I don't. I don't know. I think. I think it's. I think I. I I'm tending. Uh, I'm inclined to sort of agree with Jens here that uh, a response was required uh, to the fact that you know American vehicles were apparently involved. Uh, but I haven't seen. I don't. I don't see panic exactly. I mean, I think yes, of course. There, there's. You know, we've talked about the fact that uh, there is too much reticence in, in this space's opinion on average, if I may say that, uh, because obviously we would like faster and more uh, assistance to Ukraine. But uh, in light of this incident, I, I think, you know, there will be a small media flurry and it will blow over. I don't really expect it to have a long lasting impact on US support, um, you know, and, and as to the complexity of the American political landscape uh it's it's the same story in any democracy you, you know in the uk we have several subdivisions in each party even though you know our population is much smaller there, there is that sort of fragmentation in any political landscape uh the, the us is just extremely well known right because it's it's in the news all the time yeah, yeah. around the world That's also true, yeah. like, you know it's it's just really magnified all this and stuff. And it's bigger. And it's ultimate, bigger. It's bigger. It's bigger in scale. Everything's bigger. Yeah, it's bigger in scale. Everything's bigger, scale. flashier. <laughs> yeah, flashier, more crazy. You know, more loud. All that, right? So there's there's a lot of it, and you see a lot of it. Um, I, I'm optimistic. I I think you know this was this was an excellent excellent sort of move, um, by these completely unrelated Russians who decided to cross the border and what have you. I think it sends a message internationally that uh, these these sort of uh, strongman leaders who would align themselves with Putin um, 
will probably not look well on this complete lack of uh, <laughs> lack of sort of border security and uh, complete lack of discipline uh, internally, right? So I don't know. I think it's a multi-layered uh, move and it'll be interesting to see how the repercussions go. The Americans were not the target audience. The Russians no, were the target no, audience. No, and perhaps... You're, you're yeah. absolutely correct on that. Yeah, this is, uh, as I said, it's a political war. Sorry to interrupt, by the way, and thank you for the compliment. No, no, of course. But um, it's obviously, it's a political warfare and information warfare for the Russian population. No, no doubts about it. That's the nature of it. That's its objective. That's it. Wholeheartedly agree. And it performed extremely well. It did its job. It uh, caused the necessary consequences. Even if Moscow says, no, no, we're not worried. Well, they sent... No, no, we lost you there. Ah, sorry. Yes, sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, can you hear me now, Axel? We can, uh, loud and clear. Okay. Um, I was saying that uh, it caused the necessary panic in Russia. But when I read that New York Times piece, I was very worried in some other conversations I had with some other people. doesn't matter. Uh, this, let's put it this way. My worrying is not only the New York Times piece, it's other things that um, I've been fortunate enough to talk about with some very knowledgeable people. And um, that had me worried because it's, um, it has impact in the U.S. process. Make no mistake about it. And we will see it emerge. If It's like this. If the water they pull, the cold water they pull, they poured on this with those leaks and articles work um, is perceived by Ukraine and the Ukrainians decide to shift the strategy not do it again that's fine but if this repeats itself in more operations that are unorthodox or unconventional are uh, happen in Russia there's going to be a lot of scared, a lot of spooked a political milieu in in the US. I have no doubt about it. Uh, and that's something that people need to be aware of. And I think uh, it. let's not say, uh, I don't want the people to think there's panic about it. No, there's no panic about it. What the Americans... But what we saw is an attempt to basically curb that tool of the Ukrainian state. Okay, uh, I'd like to make that perfectly clear. Okay, that's a, a tool that it was uh, trying to immediately curb that by putting it on Ukrainian security services going a bit rogue and whatnot. There's no rogue operations in this, right? This is a well thought out uh, plan, but. Uh, I just want people to know, to understand that we may have an issue there. Lunchtime, please, you have a follow-up question. Thank you. Um, well, I, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, you know, uh, Ukraine has plausible deniability on its side, right? Uh, you know, 
Zelensky was off doing his G7 thing. Uh, people were you can you can kick it into long grass if you want. And and to 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 look at the other side and unsavory things happening from the American side, there was uh, there was some article wasn't there before all this, which uh, talked about this leaked article which supposedly disclosed Zelensky's. Um, ambitions to really you know strike deep into russia and, and be much more um much more expansive and all this sort of stuff this was like uh, i think it was washington post I, don't, I can't really remember but uh it was along the lines of um uh, sounding a cautionary note about supporting zelensky and this was before any of this happened so it, it's like you know <sighs> Unfortunate stuff, uh, unfortunate um, uh, actions have been taken on both sides, if you want to see it like that. Uh, ultimately, though, uh, when it comes down to it, Ukraine can quite happily say these were Russian citizens acting in Russia and it's not our job to, to be passport control for people who want to enter a nation that is committing actively genocide against our nation. So uh, I think that will hold weight over, uh, hopefully, uh, if there's any fairness in the world, uh, over any of these other concerns. Let's hope. No, anyway. and let's hope, let's hope that's the point. But um, I'm, a, I'm a bit sceptical in, uh, in this regard. Because, again, as I've said, uh, what you heard from Europe was zero. Total silence. Nobody said absolutely a thing about this. It's warfare. It's done. Actually, Ben Wallace went to uh, met um, his counterparts, um, Reznikov, and even uh, published uh, a photo with a, a line reminiscent of Churchill uh, of an Su-24 with the storm shadow. And Macron took uh, basically took Zelensky to Japan. Um, so there's 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 this, but this is this is important, and I, I'd like people to understand that it's an issue. Okay, it's it's an issue, and we should not um, uh, make it a minor issue because it will come back to haunt us if uh, if and when I hope these types of operations continue to to be. To, to go on. Uh, I believe Mete had a question. <laughs> Sorry, I'm waving here, but well, you're just in the point that I was willing, because I'm looking at all the press uh, press uh, situations that the Pentagon is doing, and I watch the Rammstein, uh, and I read the US articles, and somehow it's always these two magazines that get the question, and it's Washington Post and it's the New York Times. And those are the uh, magazines that do uh, articles about the poor Crimean Russians who are there and live in fear, etc., etc., and wanting to, you know. Uh, and it's, you know, just as we have got rid of Fox News, more or less, uh, but the, it's these two magazines, and it was today in the Ramstein uh, questioning, <clears throat> they gave three questions and it was all over press who had asked 
decent questions about the war and about the Ukrainians and about the situation. Then came Washington Post and New York Times. Surprise, surprise. Both were asking about the American arm arms in the Ukrainian side. And uh, it's just that I wanted to point out that there is two... I've, I've been following all these, uh, you know, articles. So those two... I don't know why they get in front of everyone else and no one else can get, you know, to question, uh, isn't this a smart move and isn't Ukraine doing well and so on. They ask only these political questions that uh, talk to the extreme right and extreme left. That's all I wanted to say. These two magazines, Washington Post and New York Times. Thank you. Thank you. I think we should uh, move on, Axel. What do you think? Uh, I'll be here for a bit more because today I probably have to 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 do this a uh, little. Uh, well, we have to finish a bit earlier, but Axel is out here. Probably, come on, man, don't do it. Um, <laughs> we have we have a few more things to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go over to G seven, right? Um, yes, G seven. So it was an excellent move to get. Um, Zelensky to Japan, Mr. Macron scoring points uh, in taking uh, Zelensky in a, a French Air Force plane to Japan. A very uh, sound display of unity, uh, not only between the, the G7 uh, partners, but also um, Zelensky uh, met uh, especially Modi and met a few other uh, leaders, the Indonesian uh, president and all that. Before that, he went to the Arab League um, as a very, um, well, as a very good Portuguese um, commentator and very good uh, Portuguese analyst of international affairs pointed out uh, today um, is the Ukrainians have been following a, a very uh, steady diplomatic strategy of mirroring Russia for support. Uh, of mirroring uh, the support, mirroring the the same um, pipeline that the Russians uh, have used diplomatically, addressing the same audiences, trying to enlarge and internationalize the conflict, which is important for them too, for them, Ukraine. So in this sense, it was very relevant in my view, uh, especially uh, meeting what people like to talk about the global south, which I, frankly, uh, it's not a Tamara I like very much, but um, meeting leaders from countries that, or sit in the ba- or sit in the fence, or are um, have their own interests. Um, India is my part is India and Indonesia being two key players that Zelensky had. Uh, met there because you're talking about the world's largest country in population terms, India. And you're talking obviously about uh, the world's biggest Muslim country, which is Indonesia. Both of them extremely important in the international system as regional uh, players. India a bit, uh, eventually a bit more than a regional player uh, in the future. So it's it's very very important uh, for Zelensky to seek the support 
and to go after these political and diplomatic steps, even with the Arab League too. Of course, no one expects Bashar al-Assad to side with Ukraine or the Saudis, but um, you'd expect them to not... Um, Bashar al-Assad is a specific case, but uh, the others, you'd expect them not to... Uh, to support Russia, which is uh, a smart strategy to address internationally and to mirror as as that uh, very uh, well uh, well uh, versed uh, Portuguese commentator said, um, um, it's important to to go and 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 mirror this diplomatic strategy by the Russians and address the global south and address other nations that are um, that view this as an European matter. Um, and whose support is important. I would like to point out that shame here falls on Brazil. Lula being the old Latin American communist that he is, uh, is clearly sided with the Russians. And Brazil is has a shameful, shameful position in this. He didn't meet Zelensky. He came up with some cocked up excuse. Sorry, my my French. But uh, it was a shameful act by Brazil, and one that is more than that. It's not smart because Brazil is in a position where it could reap great benefits from being a kind of revolving door between the European Union, the United States, and the Chinese, because it has good ties with everyone. And Lula, by uh, tying himself to the Chinese and tying himself to the Russians, is compromising his goodwill, uh, his relations with the Americans and with uh, also Europeans. Even if Portugal, and uh, this is a criticism of the Portuguese government, will do anything not to compromise uh, its relations with Brazil, which I found, I find, I personally find troubling, but that's my opinion, and I know there's others with other opinions, but um, Brazil did, uh, I think Brazil. is clearly uh, had the shameful position in this, and it's it's one of the things I think I personally uh, regret seeing uh, by a country as important and as relevant as the Brazilians are. The rest, it went well. It was a solid display of G7 unity, and uh, G7 is becoming uh, clearly uh, has been reinvigorated by uh, the war in Ukraine as a stage for what we like to call the extended West uh, as uh, a political platform for coordination of uh, of policy and of strategy and all that. That's a, a revival of, of, of the G7, a clear revival of the G7. So in that sense, it's good to see um, and let's hope that that endures. Axel. Let's hope. Let's hope. Um, my last question in that regard would be for you. 
The counter-offensive is already in full swing, say some in Ukraine. Others say the shaping operations continue throughout the week. Does it really matter? No. No. It's uh, the the counter-offensive, I wouldn't say it's in full swing. I'd say it's going through uh, its steps and its plans. There's a, a point here that I think we need to point out clearly, which is the logistics side of this, right? So Ukraine is receiving, received and is received, keeps receiving uh, a lot of equipment, different equipment at that. There's um, beyond the different equipment, there's also if you're going to engage in large combined arms operations, sorry, excuse me, uh, in large combined arms operations, there's a need to have uh, stocks prepositioned, large, large stocks prepositioned. There's a need in stocks of ammo, fuel, foods, water, you name it, spare parts, barrels, you name it. Um, so this is a very significant logistics operation. We are seeing the arrival of some late stage equipment like the CV-90s. Um, so they are biding their time because there's a massive logistical issue with this, right? They haven't committed these forces. They're training up some, some of their left forces. We've seen all. We have all seen the videos of people leaving uh, Spain and leaving other places in Europe. We've seen that the Swedes, uh, uh, that Swedish brigade, is has the gear is moving towards Ukraine. So there's, but that in itself is a stage of the operation. And at the same time, this is happening. We still have fights along, uh, fighting along the line of contact. And we have shaping operations with deep fires where unconventional and special operations, irregular forces conducting operations. So it's ongoing. And the fight is ongoing, right? But the truth of the matter is um, people are expecting... As all as always, are expecting the big fight. I'd say don't expect a, a big fight straight out. Expect a, a number of small fights that will turn into a big fight. And I've written, and I'll have it. I'll translate it to English when I find the time. I've written an article for a Portuguese newspaper saying that possibly we'll be seeing a phase that is focused on the effect on the enemy, and this was before the Belgorod raid. Um, more effects on the enemy than effects on exactly territory at the uh, 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 stage, uh, uh, this first stage. So we will be possibly seeing um, much, a few more things happening, uh, like what happened in the Black Sea with that uh, Russian recon that's Russian ship which we don't know exactly, but apparently it was hit by um, a UAV. Uh, not a UAV, a US, 
a surface vehicle, an unmanned surface vehicle. So a number of things will happen. The issue here is mostly um, don't expect immediately this big march to contact like World War One because this is not going to happen in that way. That's my view, okay? It's worth what it's worth, but that's not going to be the idea. What's going to happen is a series of localized counterattacks and eventually uh, breaches will be made and then uh, when that happens, um, we enter a phase of exploitation and that's where things get funky really hard, really fast. And when this goes down, it will um, chaos will ensue. I have zero doubt about this. Exactly how it's going to go down, I am not really sure, and I don't think anyone outside Ukrainian command is really sure. And even them, they have probably their plans and their ideas for this. Okay, so uh, that's that's a, an important point. All right. And on that note, Milo, I know your time is limited. Are you good for a last question? Ah, go ahead, go ahead, please. Because then David has his hand up. <laughs> I knew it, because he couldn't cycle up before. Go ahead. No, no, uh, good afternoon, good evening. Thanks for m making time to speak with us. I always love listening. Hope you're well. Uh, question will be relating to the, pre the previous discussion just now on the G7. Uh, as someone, I, I like to observe politics and uh, I generally enjoy what I consider master strokes. I wish to pay a compliment to Narendra Modi. I thought he was uh, absolutely brilliant and I think he stumped the Brazilians. And kind of, aside from the Ukrainian delegation stealing the show, I think number two, uh, and was a horse not in the running for me, but, you know, extremely, in the end, finished by a clear head. Uh, Modi did extremely well. I was surprised, delighted by it. And so with that, then a secondary question, perhaps, what is, what ground is left open to those of, in the Brazilian, in the Brazilian political context? Uh, there's an opportunity here. Uh, Lula has put himself in a certain corner. And so there's a lot of ground, uh, good political ground. I'm sure that there are many good millions of people in Brazil, just like the rest of us, who could see an invasion and see that it's wrong. So uh, he's left the door open, I'm sure, on his flank. So I wonder how that would play. Uh, thanks very much for your time here. Everybody, please retweet, share the space. Very, so, yes, I think Molly did uh, extremely well. Uh, in the meantime, uh, just a, a point I've shared to the nest. The, the comments I was referring to by the Portuguese international affairs analyst. Uh, go follow her. She's excellent. Um, and uh, yes, Lula still has uh, some issues with that. Um, I think he, he compromised Brazil's uh, situ political situation. Of course, Brazil has many people who agree that this shouldn't be the 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 direction of its policy and see the the dangers that this direction brings, especially over time with the relations with the U.S., especially if we have a change in U.S. administration, Brazil is going to have a hard time. Um, and even in the EU, it doesn't get them any goodwill, despite whatever the Portuguese government thinks. 
uh, but our influence to a certain extent is limited because when the Germans and even the French look at it and say, mm, in the Italians, and don't forget that for uh, the Italians, Brazil is um, also a competitor for their arms industry, so there's a problem there. And Georgia Maloney isn't exactly the most uh, left-wing aligned <laughs> politician you'll find in Europe. Um, she won't uh, miss a chance to bang on that. Um, it's it's it creates a problem for the Brazilians over time. Right now it doesn't, but over time it creates because they were in a very good position to exploit their their good relations with all major geopolitical blocks, and they've probably shunned that away with this. Um, with this um, issue of of uh, Ukraine and the way they behaved on this, because one thing is India, even if India, let's say that they they will never side with the Chinese, but India is India. It has a different scale. It has a different, um, it has different ambitions than Brazil, uh, and it has a different weight than Brazil in the international arena. Um, Brazil is like Turkey, a medium power. It's important regionally, but in the big game, it counts what it counts, like Nigeria and Turkey, to an extent. Go ahead, uh, David. Thanks very much, Nuno, for your response. And then um, something that was playing on my mind, and I was in the back channels discussing with Ryan, uh, Oklahoma Ryan, about oil infrastructure and gas and mineral extraction. Uh, I know the Brazilians have a particular skill, a massive industry in this regard, and is Lula playing his? Um, is he playing his mineral cards? Is, does he intend to allow for infrastructurally important machinery or replacements to pass through Brazil, and therefore make a tidy a tidy coin? I don't think he's doing it uh, solely for for um, ideology. No, I think it's it's more uh, being aligned with the Russians. I think that's. Um, I think it's more. Aligning with not exactly with the Russians, it's I think it's um, it's more aligned with um, with China. It's more in alignment with uh, with the Chinese. Um, I think it's it's important. Uh, it's to to the access. His alignment is not exactly with the Russians, is with the Chinese. That's where his alignment uh, is. And I know, uh, I hope that answers the question, Pavel. It's also massive indebtedness. Yeah, it's all Brazil. They have overburdened with debt and long term contracts. And David, just for your purposes, I mean, uh, it's not uh, Brazil which has the industry. Without Schlumberger and Halliburton, nothing would work in Brazil in that regard. The extraction economy would not work without the tech which uh, both the European as well as the North American side of those companies bring to bear. Anyway, Nuno. OPSEC, um, I think, I think OPSEC has yeah, a question. Yeah, I was just about to say, OPSEC had his hand up. <laughs> Go ahead, OPSEC. Yes, I was just going to point out, when it comes to the BRICS, there is a lot more internal pressure um, than with, say, the G7. Uh, India needs the United States when it comes to their Navy. 
and they have this this brewing conflict, I would say, with China. Um, so I, I do think that eventually we'll see them at loggerheads there. Uh, they've also been reliant on the Russians, and I could see them in the near future uh, moving away from trying to get Russian armaments. I'll, Nobody I, buys Russian armaments anymore. I, I absolutely agree, Obsek. Um, first of all, uh, they have uh, uh, basically what is a water war with the Chinese. Uh, and uh, they have um, significant border disputes with the Chinese. So there's that. There's internal tension in that block. Also, uh, India will not side with with the Chinese um, in the Indo in the Indo Pacific uh, because of that. And it is moving away, as you say, from Russian weapons, which has been. Um, a bedrock of, of Indian military uh, acquisition or military procurement for years, but it's clearly diverging because Indians have uh, an industry they're trying to build on that, the defense industrial base, and because they've seen that uh, uh, they're better, better served with um, uh, European and US equipment, uh, for sure. And they need the United States in the Indo-Pacific to curb Chinese ambitions, uh, for sure. That's an ongoing process. Even uh, uh, China and Russia, which is a very... Um, people sometimes tie it together as a, a very unified front. But I always uh, diverge on that. I don't think it's as unified as it looks. Because if it was as unified as it looks, the Chinese would have obviously stepped in with uh, equipment and men and material, which they haven't. Go ahead, Opsak, please. Yeah, I guess so just to, to build off that as well, um, you know, forgetting about Chinese claims over um, Manchuria and sort of that, that eastern part of Russia and what that might mean if you look at their claims on the South China Sea. Uh, if, if they want something like the F-35 then they can't also be operating the S-400. And they've ordered these S-400s, and I believe there's a contract for S-500s, but Russia can't really afford to send those. So, yeah, I think exactly what you were saying. I, I, I can't see them. They can't, OPSEC, they can't even produce them anymore. Well, that, that's kind of my point. Um, so if, if that doesn't work, especially once you take what Nuno was saying with the Indo-Pacific and the, the need for the U.S. Navy, I think you have clear divides there. And then as Nuno was also saying, I think the Chinese-Russian relationship, this you know undeniable, unlimited partnership, that's just for the sake of you know putting up these statements. It's not that deep. It's sort of surface level because China has claims yes. for that, that yeah. Eastern portion of Russia, especially when it comes to things like water rights, they're going to need that. And there's, there's another thing, OPSEC, don't never forget that uh, the Chinese um, see the Russians as an opportunity, as basically the swing state in Central Asia. So they win uh, big time if Russia is either a kind of a vassal state that is economically inextricably linked with them, and they also win if Russia is in a process of instability but they cannot afford to 
be hostile, openly hostile to the West because their economy is so tied in to the US and the European Union market that they cannot afford to um, be openly hostile with that uh, without some more significant uh, power shift. And I think that's the dynamic here, right? Um, that that uh, uh, unlimited partnership is has some limitations. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, and I think, well, uh, we're on 10 minutes more, Axel. Let's do the whole thing. David. Oh, well, uh, that's wonderful. Although I'd like to point, make a, a distinction, right? And it's, it, this is an important distinction. If someone can't manufacture something, it's not that they can't, they can't, they won't be able to deliver it as opposed to making a choice to uh, being able to deliver it. They are different and people should understand that Russia has a big problem with manufacturing anything. So anyone who's put orders in is going to get a problem with deliveries. A real important distinction there. Uh, I, Nuno, think point, I, I, I think at this point, Russians, David, would like to produce for themselves. No, no, exactly right. Uh, the, uh, right. The, the, and, and there's the point. So, um, uh, but I'm I'm very glad to hear that you're going to stay here. Uh, uh, oh, well, it's only extra ten minutes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, can you do no. an extra forty? Can we nope. get an extra forty? Oh, nope. right. Extra ten is good. <laughs> But then an extra ten is good, and I think uh, the other thing I would like to point out now that we are doing the full thing, either way, it's Belarus. So our good mate uh, Lukashenko is uh, having a a fit. He has he has apparently some more disturbing issues uh, with his health, um, and. That's an interesting case. We saw obviously a, Pol- a Polish general jumping the gun and saying we should be prepared to support an insurgency of the Russian, of the Belarusian people if it comes to that. Um, yes, but uh, there's a few ifs to that. Now, I wouldn't uh, put it past Ukraine to use. Um, the Belarusian region, if things are going south uh, fast in in Belarus, but the death of Lukashenko is another factor of instability in this conflict and may just widen the conflict quite a bit, because Russia will be tempted, obviously, uh, to to in my view to seize or to definitely annex um, Belarus if. They manage it. It's a different ball game, but they'll be tempted for sure. I think. I think we can. We can ascertain, assess with a high degree of confidence that they probably if Lukashenko kicks it in. It's not their first option, but uh, if it happens for some reason, they'll probably try it. I'm not really sure if they can manage it, which is a different thing, and. Um, they always need to take in consideration for the next years, the next decades. Um, the big question for Russian intelligence special services will always be, and excuse my French, will the who will the 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 gur uh, mess with this? Right? 
because Ukrainians will be tempted to also mess with this. So we may just have, uh, if Lukashenko kicks it in, we may just have a problem brewing in Belarus. That's something I'd like to point out. Let's see how that evolves. I have no certainty about the man's health, but apparently it's gone south. And we have um, not just two full battalions of the Belarus Legion units. They've been upgraded. They've been kitted out. They've been fighting valiantly. Some of them have been amongst uh, the most hardened troops the Ukrainians have built up. Um, who knows what uh, Monsieur Budanov and others have in store for the liberation of Belarus? Yes, that's, uh, that's exactly my point, Axel. I mean, uh, if um, things go south, imagine a situation where he dies, Russians try to annex, but they're not able to exactly annex that. They're part of the Belarusian military that don't want that. There's uh, people in the streets as it was uh, back in the elections. It's tempting, right? If you have uh, some very hard soldiers like the Belarusian Legion, uh, it's tempting to to do something, to, to try and tilt the balance, which would create a massive problem for the Russians. And to an extent, I believe that's the reason Shoigu wants to step up the, the basing of, of nuclear weapons um, faster, okay? Because that's a good argument to say, no, we need to go in there uh, fast because we have our nuclear weapons there. OPSEC, please go ahead. Yeah, so that was actually one of the points I was going to make, was that gives them cover for any military action. Um, but I would also say that you, when it comes to Lukashenko, one of the reasons he hasn't gotten involved is, I think he understands that there's not really an appetite for it. And so it's a sort of self-preservation. So he's been walking this tightrope of how much can he support the Russians without losing the support of, well, you know, whatever support he has within the military, maintaining that status quo. And if the Russians do deploy those nuclear weapons, uh, that is the perfect excuse for them to go in there if that status quo changes. Exactly. That's my point. Exactly. Well, well said. Uh, if it provides a, a, a cover to say we went in because we have nukes there and we need to secure our nukes, by the way, now that we're here, we need to stabilize the country. They have about 5,000 guys there. They believe they could do it with 25,000 plus another element of the Belarusian military, uh, especially Oman, uh, the interior ministry the troops, which are uh, very, uh, uh, that are very loyal to Russians. But the Russian, Belarusian military is another ball game, and then there's the other factor: what would, what would the Ukrainians do if that comes to pass? Okay, but um, I think it's something we need to monitor if something come, happens to, to Lukashenko. I frankly, frankly, and this is my personal opinion, I'd like that status quo to remain for a bit. Uh, I don't have. Uh, I think that's, I was just about to say, we, we can't influence it, can we? <laughs> no, no, uh, we can't influence if pneumonia gets uh, Lukashenko. But, I mean, uh, if if I had to choose or any power in it, I'd keep it that way because, as Opsak was saying, and he was saying, well, um, he basically uh, 
Lukashenko has been walking this tightrope between, well, I'll support Russians, but I won't get directly involved because if I get directly involved, uh, I'll get some of my forces will get wiped out and I may not be able to contain this. Every family in Belarus has some guy in prison because of uh, being a political prisoner. There's uh, like a hundred thousand of them. So that's a tightrope the guy needs to, to walk and he knows that if some serious um, protests erupt again without uh, with the military divided, without support from the Russians, things can go really south really fast. So I think it's 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 an issue. I'd prefer us not to have that issue, but if it comes to pass, we also in the West need to assess our options for this. We have a, a government in exile. If the, the Ukrainians do something about it, they're not successful. A nudge and a twist may may do it, but let's. But the, the nuclear weapons in this process to accelerate nuclear weapons basing is clearly the Russians with some fear that something bad may happen to to Lukashenko. Well, we do not know actually how much actually how much has been stationed. Uh, we do not know whether these are mobile um, bases, uh, whether they have been fastened. Uh, there's very little to be known. There was a rumor last year, yet again, and we get these all the time, that they just brought, um, say, the basics over there so that they could launch, but not the warheads. This will continue. It's um, nothing else than nuclear kabuki, as I would call it. What's more interesting mm -hmm. to me is at the moment whether, yeah, because the both Estonian as well as, uh, um, shall we say, Finnish military intelligence seem to be quite keen on the fact that nothing really has been delivered which could be that lethal. But I'll take it as it is and with a pinch of salt. What is interesting to me, Nuno, is that the Lithuanians and the Polish have constantly been not only hosting and supporting the Belarus opposition, but they've been working very closely with them to make sure that those many, many young men who have come across the border and those who decided not to fight during the, uh, the time in Ukraine would be trained up well. How do you see the position of Poland and Belarus were to implode? I don't think the Polish would intervene, honestly. I think they have, they obviously have the plan because the commander of the ground forces stated that basically. Uh, we should be ready, and it is, his job is to be ready. So he probably has a plan, has a contingency for that, as one would expect. But honestly, um, I don't think uh, they um, they would need um, they would intervene. I think that political pressure by Europeans and the Americans would keep them uh, on a tight leash for a time being, except if. Um, there was a clear option to to seize that. It's difficult, with, especially with the Russians. It's it's complex. It, I think it's a very complex scenario, and I I'd prefer that Lukashenko lives on uh, before uh, until this war is settled and the Russians are in a worse position. After that, we could uh, then estimate uh, options for Belarus. Opsek, please go ahead. In last question of the night. Yeah, so again, you you sort of made the point. If there's any sort of intervention, uh, I think it would be political. 
um, in supporting the opposition. Um, I do not see a sort of military option on the table. Um, I think the, the polls would love that so they could answer the Zavalki gap question. But um, do, do you see maybe a, a political answer um, in that in terms of their support? And then do you think when they talk about preparations, they're talking more about handling uh, influx of refugees uh, than they are actually a military solution or coalition of the willing? Mm, I don't think. I think with the Ukrainian war ongoing and Russia still very active and well in this situation we are right And I see that we'd be seeing looks we uh, political support and a uh, political solution more than anything else, right? I think that's that's the overall uh, issue here. I I don't I, obviously the Polish military will probably have some contingency planning um, prepared for this as they should, but I don't see it being implemented. Uh, not in the current situation because that would be massively escalatory. And if the Americans are spooked by some MRAPs crossing into Russia, just imagine then a full-on invasion of Belarus. Uh, but I think that's that's at least my view here. And with Axel, I think we wrap it up tonight. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Nuno. Thank you so Sincerely much. Sincerely appreciated. David and we'll be talking Sunday evening. Yes, we will. Uh, I'll make the time for that. Uh, also, please join everyone. Everyone, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for the questions. And uh, David and Axel, uh, see you guys um, until Sunday. Nuno, it's yes. always our pleasure and our privilege to have you here. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much, guys. Bye, bye, bye. Thank you. Cheers. Thank Have you, a good everyone. Bye-bye. Good night. Let me know. Exactly. A decent, a decent evening. And he said uh, another half an hour. Right, we, we extracted a little bit more out of him. What we, what we need to do is negotiate a bit harder next time, Axel. We might, might get some more time. <laughs> I think typically is here anyway for two hours plus X, Y, Z. But in this instance, I think it was just the fact that he, uh, say, was uh, given um, sufficient capacity by senior management. There you go. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've all we've all had experience of that senior management. Opsec, you've got your hand up again. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think you could keep him a bit longer if you give him some time to speak to, uh, you know, metal music. Just just a thought. Yes, well, uh, there is that to it, yes. Well, we'll we will have some intro music, I'm quite sure, on Sunday when Thomas Tyner appears here, because it will be... Last time we had the Tyner Offensive, which was epic because it went for nine hours and something. And uh, David and I uh, had the pleasure to be there from start to finish. And uh, this time around, we're going to do a Tyner Ton yet again, but featuring the Doolittle Airwing. And uh, this time, given the fact that Thomas wanted to have a few chaps who have the aviation bug. We also not only bring him the likes of uh, 
Jeff Fisher and uh, Hop and Alex and Zgolman and uh, our friend Latin. Nope, we also bring in what he needs. That means an F-16 driver, call sign Jaeger. So it will be an interesting two and a half to three hours at the beginning of the Tylerton. Uh, and right after that, we will follow up with a little ground pounding and SOF Ranger session. I hope that we can also get to John Spencer if he has the 